If you haven't seen me before this week, I'm Simon. Uh, It's great to be here looking at Elijah with you from the book of 1 Kings. If you've got a Bible or you can see one, 1 Kings chapter 19 today. And you can take some notes on the sheet you were given on the way in if you'd like. I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us as we look at the Bible. Let's bow our heads. God in heaven, we thank you for the things that we've seen in your word over these past couple of weeks and we pray with expectation now that we might see more of you and more of what it means to live in your world as we look at this part of the Bible today. We ask that you'd help us to understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come today to our third and final week looking at the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah. And it's been a great journey. We've, we've heard some great stories. We've seen some great miracles. In chapter 17, we saw God provide food and drink for Elijah and also for a Gentile widow and her son in Zarephath. And we even saw Elijah raise the widow's son to life after he died. Then last week in chapter 18, we saw the great contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, between the Lord, Elijah's God, and Baal, the so-called fertility God who had stolen the people's hearts. And we saw God display his power and his love spectacularly and effortlessly as fire fell from heaven to burn up the sacrifice that Elijah offered. And throughout these chapters we've heard Elijah call for Ahab, Israel's king, and indeed for all the people to turn back to the Lord and to follow him again and indeed to love him with all their hearts and souls. Elijah is someone the Bible makes a lot of, and up till now at least, it's been, it hasn't been hard to see why. He really has seemed to be a great prophet, a great servant of God and of his people. But as chapter 19 opens, a few chinks are beginning to appear in the armour. All of a sudden, Elijah's not looking so great. After the stunning victory of chapter 18, we might expect to find Elijah growing in confidence and in power, but we don't. In the face of persecution, we find Elijah at the start of chapter 19 weighed down and confused. He is a prophet in the midst of discouragement. Let's read from chapter 19, verse 1. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Now, there's no doubt, is there, that Jezebel wears the pants in this relationship. Ahab may be the king of Israel, but it's his queen who's really calling the shots. And after the events of chapter 18, all Ahab can think to do is to go back and tell Jezebel about it. And she takes matters into her own hands by sending a messenger to Elijah to tell him that he's on her hit list. This seems to have been the thing to do in ancient times. Personally, I've always wondered why they go to the trouble of finding a messenger to tell someone they're going to be killed. Why not just send a messenger to kill the guy? It's a very courteous ancient custom. Just letting you know that an assassin is on his way to top you just didn't want to be caught unawares. Maybe Jezebel just wanted to terrify Elijah, and it seems that may have worked. The start of verse 3 tells us that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. You might notice in your Bibles the footnote there on verse 3 as well. The word translated as afraid might be better translated sore. And we should think about that for a minute. If that were the case, if the text is saying that Elijah saw and ran for his life, 
What could the text possibly mean? What could Elijah have seen that would make him want to run away? Well, if it's not Jezebel's murderous intent that makes him flee, perhaps it's just her unyielding stubbornness. After all, Ahab has just come back from Mount Carmel where he has seen firsthand that absolutely nothing came from heaven when Baal was prayed to, even though his prophets beseeched him and flagellated themselves throughout the whole day. But then in answer to Elijah's simple prayer, fire came down from the Lord and consumed everything, leaving just a charred dent in the ground. And Ahab has just told all this to Jezebel. And we might hope at this point that Jezebel would be impressed or shocked or at least a little worried. We might hope that she's been given some reasons to, cons- to reconsider her worship of Baal and her aggressive proselytising for him. We might hope she's been given reasons to reconsider her opposition to the Lord and his people. But seemingly, none of that enters her mind. She remains resolutely opposed to God and his prophet. And this is a good reminder for us that that spiritual enlightenment is never just a matter of education, of information. We sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that way, don't we? we? We think that if someone would just examine the evidence or listen with an open mind, then their eyes will be open and they'll turn to God. But Jezebel reminds us here that even a great proof will not move the spiritually hard hearted. There may have been a great blaze of light on Mount Carmel, but unless God grants inward light, the darkness inside remains. Spiritually confused people don't become spiritually clear without God's help, without his inward work of illumination. Even Jesus said quite prophetically on one occasion that if the Jews of his day didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't be convinced even if someone were to rise from the dead. The Lord's fire on Mount Carmel consumed everything but the stubbornness of Jezebel's heart. And that's underlined here in verse 2 by Jezebel's reference to the gods. See what she says? May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely if I don't kill you too. See, despite what she's just heard, Jezebel remains committed to the gods of her ancestors rather than to the one true God. And perhaps this is what Elijah saw that discouraged him so much. It's hard to be sure what's going through Elijah's mind at this point, but whatever it is, it has brought him to a low moment. Verse 3 tells us that he came to Beersheba, which is towards the southern end of the Promised Land, and there he leaves his servant, kind of like a Howie, I suppose, and goes a further day's journey into the desert. Verse 4 says, He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. You know, last week I went to visit a lady in hospital for my church who's dying of cancer. And uh, while I was with her last week, she said these exact words, Simon, I've had enough. See, she's reached the end of her energy and patience or something close to that. And Elijah is in the same boat here. They're the words he utters at this moment. When he says, I'm no better than my ancestors, he's probably saying he doesn't think he's achieved any more than them and he's ready to go where they have gone. It may seem strange that Elijah has just fled from the prospect of death only to ask God to take his life. I suspect, though, Elijah simply wouldn't have wanted to give Jezebel the satisfaction. Perhaps he was ready to die, but not at her hand. Whatever Elijah is thinking and feeling here, what's obvious is that he is at his lowest ebb. He is a persecuted prophet and he is deeply, deeply discouraged. 
How do you think God might have felt about that? Do you think God would have been disappointed in his prophet getting so despondent straight after his moment of glory on Mount Carmel? Well, if God was disappointed, it's not immediately obvious. Rather than rebuking him, God's response is to strengthen Elijah. Verse 5. It says, He lay down under the tree and fell asleep, and at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. While Elijah sleeps, the angel of the Lord prepares food for him. And just as God had provided for Elijah in chapter 17 by the Kerith Ravine, so God cares for the needs of his servant again here. And this is a, this is a tender and compassionate response to Elijah's discouragement. God may have been well within his rights to rebuke Elijah, but his first reaction is merciful. And the thing is, you see, that God doesn't need to come down on Elijah like a ton of bricks because his purposes don't depend on Elijah. He is sovereign, powerful beyond all comprehension and free beyond all constraint. And he is present through this chapter in strength and mercy to work his purposes out. And we get our first glimpse of that here. And so we find Elijah at Mount Horeb, much further south again. Notice that verse 8 calls Horeb the mountain of God. And that's because Horeb was a very, very significant mountain in Israel's history. Another name for it is Mount Sinai. It was the mountain, of course, where the Lord first appeared to Moses to call him into his service for the rescue of his people out of Egypt. And it was the same mountain where Moses came with the people after their exodus from Egypt and where God delivered the law on the stone tablets by his thunderous voice. And in fact, the parallels here between Elijah and Moses are unmistakable. They're not all tight parallels, but the narrative is riddled with allusions and references that are designed to remind us of that much earlier portion of Israel's history. Let me quickly point out to you six points of connection that I can see. To begin with, verse 8 tells us here that Elijah's journey down to Horeb took him 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites, of course, wandered in the desert after visiting Horeb for 40 years. Secondly, God has just strengthened Elijah for this journey with the provision of food and water, just as God strengthened the people for their wilderness journey with a miraculous provision of manna and water in the desert. Third, Moses, you remember, had encountered the power of God on the mountain but came down only to discover that the people had fallen into idolatry. Here, Elijah has seen God's power on Mount Carmel and has come down to face the discouragement of Jezebel's persistent idolatry. Fourth, when Moses met with God on the mountain to receive the law, it was an awesome experience that came with fire and a shaking mountain. As we're about to see, Elijah will live through earthquake, wind and fire on this mountain too. Fifth, when Moses met God on Mount Sinai, he hid in a cleft of rock while God passed by and he covered his eyes. And we're about to see here, God will pass by Elijah too, who was in a cave in the mountain and Elijah covered his face with a cloak. And sixth, both men at various times told God they'd had enough and God responded by providing help. Now, as you can see, there are lots of points of connection. Some are looser than others, but all suggestive of a link, I think. 
And whilst the reason for these connections is not immediately clear, we should at least begin by noticing them and we should ask ourselves as we read through these verses why the author of 1 Kings might be so interested in them. Chapter 19 verse 9 tells us that the word of the Lord came again to Elijah. This time though, God's voice doesn't come to him with a command but with a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And that immediately strikes us as a good question because we're wondering the same thing. Not just why Elijah has fled, but why he's fled here in particular. Well, Elijah's answer is curious, really. Verse 10, let me read it to you. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. Perhaps Elijah has come to Mount Sinai because he associates it with God's presence and he's feeling all alone. Perhaps he's come here because he associates it with God's revelation and he's hoping God will reveal to him what to do next because he's confused. Perhaps he's come here hoping that as God's great history with Israel began on Sinai some 400 years earlier, so he might begin again freshly now, start over with Elijah as it were. Whatever the case, he wants the Lord to know that he thinks Israel are a dead loss. He also wants the Lord to know that as far as he's concerned, it's just the Lord and him now. And that's when the Lord addresses Elijah in very similar terms to how he addressed Moses on this same mountain hundreds of years earlier. The particular incident I'm thinking of with Moses is recorded in Exodus 33, if you want to read it later. But look at verse 11 here. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the winds. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Now that must have been quite an experience for Elijah. Rocks were flying around everywhere as the mountain is shattered by a cyclonic wind. And then there was a fire and Elijah must have been reminded of the events of Mount Carmel in the previous chapter. What's more, as we've seen, it must have reminded him of what Moses experienced in this place so long before. And perhaps he greeted all this with excitement. Perhaps he was thinking that this was the experience he'd come looking for. But when Moses encountered the shaking mountain and the fire, you remember, it was followed by the unmistakable and terrifying voice of God. But here there is just a whisper at best. Some translations describe it there in verse 12 as a thin silence or a gentle blowing. This is not so much the sound of someone speaking, but the sound of air passing between the lips. God had not been in the earthquake or the fire, we're told, but I take it that the fact that Elijah covers his face at this point is a sign to us that God was in the whisper. He's got Elijah's attention. Now, Christians down through the centuries have debated back and forth with great heat at times about what this paragraph teaches us about God. Does it suggest that God doesn't always use the spectacular, but sometimes he uses the unspectacular to communicate with us? Does it mean that we need to really strain to hear God's direction at times? Does it mean that all true believers have a still, small voice communicating with them somewhere in the back of their heads? Well, I don't think any of those suggestions really capture the significance of this moment because they all have in common the assumption that God communicated something important to Elijah here. 
But it seems to me that the whole point of this is that God had nothing in particular to say. If, if God did communicate something to Elijah in verse 12, we're not told what it was, so it obviously isn't a crucial part of the narrative. It's not till the end of verse 13 that God does communicate clearly with Elijah and we are told what he said. But at the end of verse 12, it's just the sound of God's breath that Elijah recognises. You see, if Elijah came here hoping for a fresh vision of God or for a new revelation or for a new beginning, then perhaps this is God's way of saying no. Perhaps this is God's way of saying, you know all there is to know, Elijah. You've seen me already as I really am. There's no need to start again from scratch. If Elijah had come here hoping to mimic Moses' experience, perhaps this is God's way of saying that Moses' experience was definitive. There's nothing more to add. There's nothing new to say. So when Elijah comes out to the mouth of the cave in verse 13 and he does hear the voice of God audibly and clearly, this is what God says. What are you doing here, Elijah? He repeats his question of verse 9. Perhaps he's underlining what the experience of verses 11 to 13 should have taught Elijah. If he came looking for a fresh experience of God, perhaps God is subtly suggesting that he could have been better employed elsewhere. It's as if he's saying, why are you still here, Elijah? Well, God has repeated his question, but Elijah is strangely content to repeat his answer too. Verse 14 is identical to verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Elijah's Messiah complex hasn't dissipated at all so far. So this time God gets very explicit with Elijah. Verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahaloah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. God is clear with Elijah here that he should go back the way he came and get on with the work. But again, there is tender mercy in God's dealing with Elijah at this point. The Lord acknowledges that Israel are a dead loss, and he says that they will come under judgment. He also acknowledges that Elijah does need help. So he calls on him to go from Horeb to Damascus in Syria and to anoint Hazael as the new king in that place. In years to come, Hazael and his army would attack and oppress God's people. Elijah was also to anoint Jehu as the new king for Israel. In days to come, he would bring God's judgment on Jezebel. And Elijah was also to anoint the prophet Elisha to be his successor. And as we read in verse 17, all these three would be involved in God's wrath being poured out on God's people. All those whose hearts are still with Baal would feel the weight of God's proper jealousy fall on them. And in this way, God asserts his own kingship over his people. See, chumps like Ahab may sit on a throne in Israel, but it's the Lord who really reigns. He's the one who installs and removes kings because he's the king of kings. God also admits at this point that Elijah's case against Israel is a fair one. At one level, Elijah had good reason to be discouraged and the Lord knows that. But at another level, Elijah had reasons not to be discouraged. And some of what he said to God twice now in this chapter is just plain wrong. 
It's Elijah's Messiah complex that is especially short-sighted and God exposes that at the very end of their encounter. This verse would have rocked Elijah's world and it ought to stagger us as readers as well. Look at verse 18. The Lord finished by saying to him, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Well, you can almost see Elijah's jaw drop. For two weeks now we've been saying that Elijah and the true believers in Israel were in a distinct minority and that remains true. But the minority is stronger than we thought. Certainly stronger than Elijah thought. In chapter 18 verse 22 last week Elijah said, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. And here he's twice said something similar. Of course there have been hints along the way that he may have been overstating the case. There was Obadiah after all in chapter 18 and there were also the hundred prophets of the Lord that Obadiah hid in caves to protect them from Jezebel's assassination program. But 7,000 people, really? Who would have thought? Clearly not Elijah. There are 7,000 in Israel whose lips have not been stained by kissing Baal's image. And there are 7,000 whose knees have not touched the dirt before Baal's form. Who has done that? Who has protected them and preserved them? Has it been Elijah? Clearly not. God. God has done it. And he has done it in his wonderful sovereignty, the sovereignty we've seen so much of in these chapters. Chapter 17, we saw his sovereign power and will to bring life. In chapter 18, we saw his sovereign power and will to vanquish Baal and his people's hearts at the same time. And here we see his sovereign power and will to preserve a people for himself. He is sovereign, powerful beyond all comprehension and free beyond all constraints. And he is present through this chapter in strength and mercy to work his purposes out. Elijah, of course, didn't know about the 7,000 true believers. And that's because he was not all-knowing. He wasn't omniscient like God is. He could not know all like God does. And you see, that's the problem with the little speech he gave to God here in verse 10 and again in verse 14. He presumed he did know everything. He presumed he had his finger on the pulse of God's work in the world. That's why he felt confident to tell God that he was the only one left. But now we see how ridiculous that was, how laughable. Elijah says to God, it's just you and me, mate, we better start again. And God looks lovingly at Elijah but with a sovereign smile and says, it's not just you and me, Elijah. My purposes are far bigger than you realise and my work is far greater than you can see and there's you and me and 7,000 others according to my sovereign plan. Now, of course, there are a couple of great lessons in this for us. The first is a lesson about trust. Because there will be times, won't there, when we feel some of Elijah's discouragement, times when we feel like all hope is lost, when we've had enough and we want to give up, or when we feel like we're the only one on the right page. And in those moments we can be tempted to tell God what he should do to fix it. We can be tempted to complain to God like we know what we're talking about. But in those moments we must remember that God is omniscient, but we are not. He knows everything. And our prayers to God and our comments about God ought to be tempered by the humility that comes from knowing that God's purposes are far bigger than we realise and his work is far greater than we can see. And we should trust him. 
The other lesson for us is a lesson about grace. Because the fact that there were 7,000 in Israel whose hearts belonged to the Lord and Elijah knew nothing about it means that they were part of God's family out of the sheer power of God to keep his promises and the sheer kindness of God to keep his people. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 11. It's on the screen. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, he writes, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. God works to save and call and protect his people with or without our help. He does so not because of the good works of those people, not because of their upstanding lives or their religious activity, but because of sheer grace and faithfulness. He loves his people and he has made promises to them that he has every intention to keep. And so if we find ourselves part of a remnant at the present time, part of a minority, but perhaps part of a bigger minority than we think, then we ought to remember that we are part of God's family, not because we're deserving or because we've worked hard for it or because God finds us impressive, but because we've been saved and called and protected by God, by the grace of God on its own. And that ought to make us deeply humble and endlessly grateful. 1 Kings chapter 19 reminds us of this defiant certainty that ought to live in the hearts of all God's people. The Lord is sovereign, powerful beyond all comprehension and free beyond all constraint. And he is present throughout our world in strength and mercy to work his purposes out. And those purposes wind through human history like a river whose current is unstoppable and whose pull is irresistible. God had been at work with strength in Elijah's day to preserve a remnant of 7,000 and he had been at work with mercy, even for Elijah, strengthening him, gently correcting him and reminding him of what he'd revealed. Which means, of course, that to ask whether Elijah is still a great prophet at this point is really to be asking the wrong question because it doesn't matter much whether Elijah is a great prophet or not as long as God is still a great God and he is. Well, the chapter finishes with Elijah doing at least one of the things that God told him to do in verse 16. He goes to anoint his prophetic successor, verse 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was ploughing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Elisha and his family were obviously not in the poorhouse. They had land big enough to plough and 12 pairs of oxen to work with. And when Elijah throws his cloak over Elisha, he seems to know instantly what that means. So he leaves his oxen and runs after Elijah, first asking if he can go and farewell his parents. And Elijah's slightly strange response in verse 20 is, I think, just his way of saying, I'm not stopping you. Go and say goodbye. And then verse 21 tells us that Elisha had taken this call very seriously. 
He was making a decisive and permanent break with his old life. Verse 21, Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. And in so doing, he models for us what it means to hear the call of God and follow. And at the same time, his appointment as Elijah's successor is another reminder to us that God has his hands well and truly on the steering wheel in Israel. The Lord is sovereign, powerful beyond all comprehension, free beyond all constraint. And he is present through this chapter in strength and mercy to work his purposes out. Well, we've come to the end of this short series and the end of these chapters, though not to the complete end of Elijah's ministry, I might add. You could read on to find out a little bit more about the life and times of Elijah. But these three chapters we've looked at together do represent the bulk of what 1 Kings tells us about his ministry. So how can we summarise? There's no doubt Elijah is a great prophet. His ministry in these chapters in calling Israel back to the worship of the Lord is marked by great miracles and of great courage, great faithfulness. Though, as we've seen, this last chapter of our threesome shows us the holes that exist even in the bottom of Elijah's boat. His faith is not perfect and his discouragement and short-sightedness here are shown up in this chapter for what they really are. And that's ultimately because Elijah is not the main character of these chapters. God is. And as we've already said today, the question of whether Elijah is a great prophet really needs to run second to the more important question of whether the Lord is a great God. And these chapters have shown us time and time again that he is. And in particular, we've seen that these chapters are written to address God's people when they're in a minority. And as such, they've spoken very directly to us who live at this point in human history and in this part of the world as well. And the message of these chapters for us is that God's people can trust him, no matter how small the minority may be and no matter how great the persecution may be. The Lord is the God who gives hope. And our hope as God's people is grounded in the defiant certainty that this chapter in particular encourages. The Lord is sovereign, powerful beyond all comprehension, free beyond all constraint, and he is present throughout our world in strength and mercy to work his purposes out. And those purposes wind through human history like a river whose current is unstoppable and whose pull is irresistible. And that means that you and I have even more reason to hope and trust than Elijah did. Because Elijah ultimately serves to point us in the direction of one greater than he. At the very end of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi prophesied to God's people and urged them to remember Moses and to obey God's law because a day was coming when a new Elijah would come and prepare the way for the coming of the Lord himself. And then when we get to the New Testament, we find someone like the Gospel writer Luke showing us how Malachi's prophecy was fulfilled. When the birth of John the Baptist is foretold, in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, we hear the angel say that John will minister in the spirit and power of Elijah to call the people of his day back to God and to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord himself. And then when we come to Luke chapter 9, Luke records for us one of the strangest scenes you're likely to find in the Gospels. Not long before Jesus was arrested, he was with his disciples one day praying on a mountain. And all of a sudden, his appearance changed. And instantly, there were two men standing with him who hadn't been there before. And they were talking with Jesus. And Luke tells us in chapter 9, verse 30, that the two men were Moses and Elijah. 
These two great heroes of the Old Testament had come down from heaven for a moment to be with Jesus. And as the disciples watched Jesus talk with Moses and Elijah, they were enveloped in a great cloud and they heard a voice, not just a gentle whisper, but a voice loud and clear, perhaps like the voice Moses once heard on Sinai and Elijah heard on the same mountain. And the voice said, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. See, God wanted the disciples to know that one greater than Moses and one greater than Elijah was in their midst. And for hundreds of years, Israel should have listened to Moses and should have listened to Elijah, but now is the time to listen to Jesus. And it's with all that in mind that I want you to see what Luke records for us at the very end of chapter 9 in his Gospel. I've never noticed this connection before, so I'm excited to show it to you. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 9, verse 57. It's on the screen. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. These are hard words from Jesus. He's wanting people to realise what it really means to follow him, what it really looks like to be a disciple. It involves great cost, a readiness to lay other priorities aside and ultimately the willingness to love and serve Jesus first before all else. It's no light thing to be a Christian, you see. The Lord demands your life. Of course, as we read on in Luke's Gospel, we discover that Jesus doesn't ask anything of us that he hasn't already done for us. He may ask us to give him our lives, but he first gave his life for us. Nevertheless, this is what it means to follow Jesus. But did you notice the third character who approached Jesus? Did he remind you of Elisha? He should have. He wanted to go back and say goodbye to his family. And then Jesus very evocatively talks about following him in terms of putting your hand to the plough. I think he wants us to think Elisha at this point. But what's the point of connection? Well, it seems to me that if Elijah was a great prophet but didn't mind Elisha going back to farewell his family, but Jesus says that now he's here, there's no time for that, that following him is more urgent and displaying the priority of serving him is so pressing, if that's what Jesus is saying, then that can only be because he really is greater than Elijah. For Elisha, following Elijah mattered. But for us, following Jesus matters so much more. For the Israelites, listening to Elijah mattered. But for us, listening to Jesus matters so much more. And the ultimate reason for that, I suppose, is that Jesus did what Elijah could never do. Elijah is a persecuted and discouraged prophet in 1 Kings 19 because despite the great display of God's glory on Mount Carmel in chapter 18, evil still prospered in Israel. Yet the display of God's glory on the hill called Golgotha that first Easter secured once and for all the conquest of all that is evil and opened up the door to life and truth and hope for all who will enter. On Mount Carmel, Elijah won a battle. On the cross, Jesus won the war. And in that moment, he issued an invitation to your heart and mind to come after him and walk with him and serve him 
and know his endless love. And in that moment, he gave us more reason to do that than we could possibly ever need because in that moment he established the defiant certainty that 1 Kings chapter 19 is all about and which I hope your life is built on. That the Lord is sovereign, powerful beyond all comprehension, free beyond all constraint and he is present throughout our world in strength and mercy to work his purposes out. What God had achieved in Israel in Elijah's day was just a glimpse of what the Lord Jesus began to achieve when he surrendered his life in order to grant life to us. And what God had achieved in Israel in Elijah's day was also just a glimpse of what God has achieved and continues to achieve in human history as he gathers people from all the nations of the earth. As the Apostle Paul said, there is at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. That remnant is bigger than you or I or our churches or the Sydney Uni EU. Much, much bigger. And I dearly hope you've found yourself a part of it. That remnant really is like an unstoppable and irresistible river winding through history and I hope you've found yourself swept up in it. Just as Elijah found himself part of something in his day much, much bigger than he'd ever dreamed The Lord said to him, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your purposes which stretch out through human history like an irresistible torrent which swept up Elijah and with him 7,000 others in his day and which since that time has swept up many others, including many of us who sit in this room this afternoon and we are humbled and grateful for your grace. And we pray for people on this university campus and people in our city, people we know and love, to be swept up along with us by the invitation of the Lord Jesus who surrendered his life and who rose again to offer life and hope and truth to us. And we pray these things in his sovereign name. Amen.